The General Insurance presents Shower Ballads by Shaq. And I'm gonna keep on loving you Cause it's the only thing I wanna do Turns out, everyone does sound better in the shower. And it turns out, The General is a quality insurance company that's been saving people money for nearly 60 years. For a great low rate and nearly 60 years of quality coverage, make the right call and go with the General. The General Auto Insurance Services, Inc. Insurance Agency, Nashville, Tennessee. Some restrictions apply. Bet MGM is pitching baseball fans a chance to swing for the fences. Register using code CAPITAL200 and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 money line wager on any Major League Baseball game and either team hits a home run, regardless of your bet's outcome. Enjoy baseball like never before with Bet MGM's daily promotions at your fingertips all season long. Sign up today and find out why nothing beats a win at the King of Sportsbooks. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. One. Hi there, this is Jim Horan, the Keys bartender, coming to you from Key Largo. Uh, today I have with me Daniel Horton Diaz, and he's a candidate for the Democratic uh, nomination for the Florida State Senate seat for District 39 that incorporates uh, Monroe County and parts of Miami-Dade. Say hello there, uh, Daniel. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me on. That was very well done, by the way. You, yeah. you got that out perfect. I know. It's not like having a dry run. We just did about five minutes of the show, <laughs> listeners. And uh, if you're a listener's show, the, uh, the, um, the Internet was fine. The Internet was fine because I'm directly wired in. I'm not, I'm not being uh, – I think I'm going to go from now on. I'm just going to do a hardwired one before. And the interruption or the lack thereof of a connection was due to my faux pas. But uh, luckily, we have someone who's very uh, skilled of uh, <laughs> in what he does. And Daniel, I uh, first became acquainted with you when you ran in 2016 against Holly Rasheen for her house seat. She's uh, the 120th, uh, 120th district. Is that right? Because I got the first, you know, That's right. first. Okay. Yep. And that's uh, Monroe County and parts of uh, Miami-Dade. Um, and you're uh, the 39th district you're, this time around, and it incorporates. And I, from what I understand, I did a little research, obviously not enough research because I got the district wrong. I'm not going to say the the wrong district because that will just cause – but it is the 39th. I had the wrong one. But it is I did the 39th. Know it, it, instead of um, what, what happens with that, there's currently 40 – around 40 senators. There's uh, – is that correct? 40, That's right. 40 mm-hmm. senators in, in the Florida House, uh, State House. And they're, um, they represent approximately about 470,000 uh, people yep. each. So the, um, you, you have a, a large area, but part of that area is being Monroe County. And um, that's um, very, very exciting. You, you hail from Georgia, but you've been down here for a while. So let's hear – you started out in North Georgia. 
that's where you grew up, right? That's right. And we'll take it from there. Where'd you? Yeah, so basically I grew up in North Georgia, uh, a little town called Tunnel Hill. There is literally a hill. There is a tunnel that goes through the hill, and it was thusly named. They named it Tunnel Hill, very creative uh, in that area of the country. So I grew up there. We grew up very poor. I ended up moving down to Atlanta uh, to go to college. Uh, and I actually worked in restaurants and uh, bars as a bartender and as a server for almost nine years in Atlanta. So I'm, I'm very familiar with your profession. I'm very familiar with uh, probably a lot of the listeners uh, who work in the hospitality industry. I've been there. I remember what it's like to work those doubles, especially especially on days like Mother's Day where it's like a straight through 16-hour shift. Um, but I've been there, uh, I, I get it, and I actually learned a lot working in restaurants that has really come in handy um, you know, in, in government and politics. Um, but I moved from Atlanta, got my degree, came down to South Florida in 2011, and I went to law school at FIU, which is actually also in the district that I'm running for. Became the uh, president of the student body uh, for the law school. I did a lot of work in the community leadership, Miami program, got some awards and stuff, which is neither here nor there. But, um, you probably remember me from 2016. Like you said, when I ran against Holly, mm -hmm. I ran for office right after finishing law school, which it, I, either makes me, I, I think it just makes me insane really. Um, but it was an interesting, uh, it was an interesting journey. I learned a lot. And of course, we won that primary by double digits. Mm -hmm. um, and 120, of course, represents South Miami-Dade. Also, it's roughly the Homestead area and the Redlands plus the Keys. We lost in the general, um, but that gave me an opportunity to go work in, in other government seats, which I know we'll, we'll get to later. So it's been an interesting ride, Jim. Okay. Well, you know what? Being a uh, Having a background in the service industry especially as a bartender you got to build in a group of activists uh, behind the 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 wood uh, behind the bars uh, up and down the keys and in miami and dade county uh while you were at fiu you did some work on uh, as a voting rights activist is that correct you worked on voting rights issues? uh kind of it, it was at fiu but it was actually a little bit later so mm -hmm. once i ran for office in 2016 of mm -hmm. course we lost in the general but i went from that and i actually became a legislative aide in the florida senate for democratic state senator annette tadeo who you probably also remember ran to represent the keys in congress a few years ago um, mm -hmm. so we worked with her up in tallahassee uh, and I did that for the 2018 legislative session, went from that, and then I became the state director for a voting rights nonprofit. Uh, it's based out of D.C. We did a lot of work with college campuses, working to make sure that they had an early voting site so that the students, the faculty, and the staff had, had the opportunity to vote where they go to school and where they work instead of having to drive all over the place and find their nearest uh, precinct polling location. So – that turned out really well. We had really high turnout numbers um, in most of the major university and college campuses throughout the state. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that ties into voting. Uh, voting rights ties in a lot with what's going to happen after the census goes in. Every so often, there is a uh, one of the largest uh, responsibilities of uh, the uh, states is redistricting right yeah the, the, drawing up a district yep. 
And uh, we have the 2020 census coming up. And currently, the Florida State Senate is, and uh, I wrote this down, uh, 23 Republicans and 17 Democrats. And you said there's a supermajority in the uh, Florida State House. So that'll be a little harder to turn over. But the this election coming up, the 2020, will determine the makeup of the Florida State House. And, and it'll be a big uh, go a long ways to uh, determining, you know, just one of the, uh, you know, the, uh, the authorities. It'll establish one of the authorities for uh, redistricting in our state, which really goes down That's to right. empowerment of the voters. A lot of people think one person, one vote. Right. But if you're crowded, yeah, gerrymandering kind of turns that whole concept on its head uh, at its worst. So actually, you bring up a good point, which I should remind everyone, if you haven't filled out your census yet, go complete the census. It's very important. And you can do Uh, that online, right? You can do that online. I don't know the website off the top of my head. It's probably like census.gov. I don't know. But just Google U.S. Census complete, and it'll pop up. Um, But it's very important because the census determines quite a few things. Of course, it's done every 10 years. It's required under the U.S. Constitution. The census determines a lot of federal funding because many different uh, federal funded federally funded projects are determined by um, population size. And so if Florida has more residents, then oftentimes they'll get more money. And if specific counties have more residents, then often those counties can get more money too, right? So if we underreport our numbers on the census, which the last I looked, I think we're barely above 54% reporting, which is not good at all. Um, that has huge impacts for the availability of federal funding for local projects. Now, to your other point about gerrymandering, so based on the 2020 census numbers, the state legislature draws the state legislative districts and all of the congressional districts after the census takes place. So the census takes place this year, 2020. In 2021, all of the state senators will go up to Tallahassee, and they'll start start dividing up Florida into districts again. Okay, It will be either be 39 or 40, depending on what they decide. But if they don't have the numbers accurate, right, then those people don't have that one vote that makes all the difference. And so this race is probably the most crucial state legislative race in, in the country, race in the country, because, like you said, we have a Republican governor. It's going to take two more years to, to get him out of office. We have the state House, which is overwhelmingly Republican. And then we have the state Senate. And we can actually win three seats in the state legislature this year. And if we win those three seats, not only can we stop some of the worst things that the Republicans are trying to do up in Tallahassee, but we also will be able to protect the integrity of the district drawing process. Because if we don't, it only happens once every 10 years. And the Republicans, the last time they redrew the districts in 2011-2012, openly gerrymandered. They are literally on record in court documents admitting that they gerrymandered all of the districts. Mm -hmm. That's why the League of Women Voters had to sue them in 2016 to force them to redraw it. But 
if we win this seat that I'm running for, and we win two more somewhere else in the state, mm-hmm. there are a couple of good opportunities there. We can stop that from happening and not only make sure that good policies are passed in Tallahassee, but we'll also enable good candidates to run in the future in seats that are competitive and fairly drawn. Yeah. To give a short, um, a short history and, and math lesson to people, um, where with gerrymandering districts, um, you, you can see if you look traditionally, so d- districts can look like these long, you know, tenuous mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. setups. And what what they try to do is, um, if you're the, uh, let's say, the party in power, and and it it turned out that the Republican Party did this a lot, recent, most recently over the last. Uh, two decades was you try to pack or stack districts, mm-hmm. making them mm-hmm. safe for Democrats. So the people that fall in there, the incumbents, they're not really that keen for changing it out. But what you like to do is to have them geographically compact. And what that would do is give some, you know, some rural counties are heavily Republican. And that's the way it is. And some uh, of these cities are heavily Democrats, but what, what they do is they incorporate a lot of these districts incorporate the suburbs. So you might get a County that's like 55% Democrat, 45% Republican, or, you know, with throwing a smattering of independence in there and let's say, and uh, when uh, the way to recover, and let's face it this way, you can agree or disagree that if you just get a small majority of Republicans they almost always have a better turnout and they win those mm-hmm. districts. That's right. And, and what probably would work best is if the natural, there's actually probably more Democrats registered in, in the state of Florida. I, and this is one thing I haven't checked, but I think there's more registered Democrats in the state of Florida and, and they're more likely, uh, but they, they end up to be in districts that are packed are heavily weighted to them. So and they don't dilute the other the thing uh, about, states. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So the thing about Florida, uh, and, and really even just South Florida in general, is we often, you know, the same thing, and, and it happens with the Democratic Party for sure with internal discussions. We often talk about the Democrats and the Republican voting numbers, mm-hmm. but the reality is that the swing voters in the swing state are the independent voters. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the mistakes that the Democratic Party has made in the past is they just count on increasing turnout among Democrats, but they don't do much outreach at all to independent voters. And I believe that you really do yourself a disservice as a candidate and, uh, and, and as a campaign. And I think the party has done itself a disservice by not reaching out to independent voters enough mm-hmm. to let them know. Some of the party platform issues, uh, as well as individual candidates that don't do enough outreach to independent voters to let them know that they're running and let them know that they're the the best candidate to win. So in this district specifically, it's actually 91,000 Democrats, 92,000 Republicans, and 89,000 independent voters. So, I mean, it is is split almost right down into three separate groups. but that's how this district breaks down. And to your point about how the districts are drawn, that's, I think, one of the dark sides of technology um, and all of the big data that we're able to collect now as, as you know, different companies are, are doing stuff online, 
marketing to individuals based on all their different preferences. They can draw districts now where they isolate individual households. I mean, if you if you look at some of these district maps and, and you zoom in, mm-hmm. and actually the district I'm running for is a great example of this, you can see they they trace individual roads, right? And so they'll draw in one neighborhood that has more Democrats voting or more Republicans voting, depending on what they need. Um, there's one massive apartment complex up here in the north part of Miami-Dade um, in the district that is drawn out. Just it's literally on the wrong side of the road, but it has a lot of students voting, right? And if you're a Republican and you're drawing this district, you want to draw in a bigger portion of Republican voters, which is what they did. So this district breaks down pretty evenly. Um, if it was if it were drawn more fairly, I think it would be a, a strong Democrat seat. Um, but yeah, to your point, the things that people that these elected officials can do when they draw these districts, it's granular. I mean, they can isolate very small numbers of people to make sure they get the results that they want. And to move to a separate issue, but related, I think the answer is uh, is instituting an independent redistricting committee. Some states have set this up. So that a, an independent committee actually draws these districts instead of the state legislators, because the state legislators have something to gain, right? And so if we move to a system where we made the people that draw these districts independent, um, I think that that would be a better result for everybody, quite frankly. Well, that, that, that I think uh, is a very uh, interesting, and, 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 and I, I would think it would be suitable to address the uh, the things that have been going on last uh, at least two decades. So just to, it's nice to drive that point home. People often forget that because they think about hot their hot button issues, um, where mm-hmm. you know they the people throw out their uh, dog whistle things of guns and religion and you know prayer mm-hmm. in schools, uh, things like that. Yep. When in in all reality, the things that most affect you has to do with. Uh, you know, wallet issues that have to do and yep. which will, we, we will address, but, um, you know, like, uh, uh, Monroe County, we're, uh, considering right now we're in the middle of a, a big, big compressed change, meaning that a lot of times change occur for us, uh, occur for people in the economy over years and what happened in starting in February into March was that uh, we've had uh, like, uh, South Florida partially or, you know, uh, South Florida is dependent on tourism, uh, Monroe County even more so with the, you know, lack of our industry and things like that. We have 44% of our jobs are related to tourism. And with this uh, pandemic, we see what happens when it's almost we talk about how important tourism is to us and we get to see right now what happens when it's not here. Mm-hmm. And the uh, week you see when uh, we saw that after Irma, that when the, you know, the, the devastation of Irma, then we had FEMA come in. And there was a plan. But in this case, we didn't have a plan. And the uh, 
unemployment. Uh, you know, the government came in with, you know, with their uh, with their checks. You know, he ends up delaying some so he can sign them. My 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 mm-hmm. wife actually got a um, she got a direct deposit, but then it was followed up with a letter with a big signature on the bottom from uh, Donald Trump. You know, which another cost I mean you could take that money and put it into research for the uh, the virus and that's just me but just to buy the numbers here did I mean I don't know how much of the tourism has to do with our total revenue but I know as and these are these are this is revenue from the TDC in Monroe County we contribute 120 million dollars to the state from uh for it, that's our combined annual tax revenue to the state. Now, of that money, we have $50 million is raised for affordable housing or environmental sensitive uh, land. We also have $70 million of revenue for Keys uh, municipalities for tourism. The capital projects that we have planned here, beaches, restor- beach restoration, park improvements, uh, marine mammal facilities, museums, amphitheaters, cultural centers. Um, that all figures into it, as well as the secondary uh, passive and, let's say, active influence of the influx of money going into people's pockets and into just upkeeping things like people's uh, paying their bills, by you know, uh, follow, you know, buying things from other merchants and stuff like that. So, we're starting to feel that right now. And what what's the responsibility of the state right now? So, and that's a really good question. I think that one of the, the overarching themes of my campaign is mm-hmm. I really am trying to focus on always talking about state issues because the national politics, they get, a, they get most of the attention. Um, And it's to the point where a lot of voters now, they have a difficult time distinguishing between what is a federal issue, what is a state issue. Most people understand the local issues, right? Streetlight, roads, you know, making sure the signs are up, that sort of thing. Um, And some of the local ordinance issues that you hear about at a city meeting. But the state issues to a lot of people are kind of mysterious and, and they don't really understand where the federal government ends and the state government begins. And to, to your previous point about the system that's in place, I've always thought of programs like the unemployment assistance uh, system as safety nets, right? You hear that phrase, mm-hmm. safety net. And if you picture a safety net like you would see at the circus, right, under a trapeze artist when they're swinging back and forth, below them is a safety net, mm-hmm. right? And if you're that trapeze artist, you want that safety net to be secure. You want it to be quality. You want to make sure that it works if you need it, right? You don't want to. You want to just keep swinging back and forth. But if you fall, you want it to catch you. Well, the Republicans in Tallahassee, using this same metaphor, have basically been taking a big pair of scissors and snipping at that net every year. They snip a little bit more, snip a little bit more, snip a little bit more to the point where the net is still there. Right. But once a catastrophic event like this COVID-19 crisis happens, we fall off the trapeze and we plummet straight through the safety net. Right. Because it looked like it was there. But the reality is they had been cutting at it for so long, it was no longer there to catch anyone. And now a lot of us 
are in a bad situation because the state government undermined that system for so long and no one was really paying enough attention. So I think that one of the things that we have to understand as a community is that the state has a lot of control and a lot of opportunity to improve on systems that we use every day. Um, And the unemployment assistance system is one of them, right? Of course, the federal government is also assisting to subsidize, but that money can't even get to people until it goes through the state system. So when you have a system like the unemployment assistance where Rick Scott you know, underfunded it and undermined it and purposefully designed a system that wasn't going to work when people tried to use it, there, there are consequences to that, and, and we're seeing those consequences now. To your point about FEMA, I know that Monroe County – so I should say after I ran for office in 2016, I ended up working in the state senate for Senator Annette Tadeo. Um, So I've got experience in the body that I'm running for. I became that state director for the nonprofit, and then I became the district chief of staff to Congresswoman Mukersell Powell, who also represents Florida Keys and South Dade. And I've seen Monroe County has some of the most involved leaders that we ever interacted with. They always know the issues. They're always making sure that we understand what the county needs, how we can help. And one of the things that I know that the county is dealing with is that they spent a lot of money. They put a lot of money up front. A lot of these municipalities, uh, the village of Alamorada, Key West, um, put money up front to try to address some of the issues that came up after Irma, and they're still waiting on FEMA reimbursements. So even though that system was in place at the federal level, we're still waiting on a lot of that money to come in. But at least we knew where it was coming from. Right now, we're all scrambling around because we don't even know, you know, our elected leaders don't even know what to do. State system's broken. Federal system is is arguing over how much it should be, how much it should be, how long it should last. Um, Yeah. So I think the overarching message really right now is that we just need better elected representation. Do do you feel, it it seems like, the um, your opponents a lot of times in, in the other party, <coughs> they tend to wrap themselves in issues that are more national and kind sure. of frou-frou. They, they have a tendency to call us snowflakes when we're talking about bread mm-hmm. and butter issues such as affordable housing, health care, um, unemployment, uh, the safety net issues, and they get more in, involved when the Second Amendment is not affected necessarily by the state, the Second Amendment is a federal issue. Uh, or when you were a child, uh, they when I was in when I was in college or after college, they were talking about trying to protect the the flag from being burned. And people get wrapped up in mm-hmm. these issues that are national that have really low impact locally meaning yes you have an impact on someone way someone's feels but the state house doesn't has more an effect on your employment on your insurance on your homeowner's insurance more so so these things that impact your daily life they're really important things that you run into day to day not these issues people get all wrapped up in and they vote on they 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 vote against their own self-interest. But I think uh, once people uh, this time around, I think we're starting to really see what it's like uh, because let's say healthcare. The, 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 
back when the President Obama was in, and it, this is I'm going to take an, I'm going to take a national issue and bring it down local. Uh, sure. Yeah. They had Affordable Care Act, and then it passed, and it became up to the states to implement their version of it, whether they were going to go for the federal marketplace or set up their own state mm-hmm. marketplace. So Florida opted to do their own marketplace, and they did it whatever amount of restrictions they can put in there for it. And it turns out, as in, let's say, Monroe County, I don't know much about what's going on in Miami-Dade, but for uh, health care for someone my age, it is financially unfeasible unless you're in, in the mm-hmm. very top. And you're, you're not – we make too much in order to get aid, and you know, but you don't you don't make enough where you can afford the plan, and the deductibles right. are outrageous and things like that. This free market, this they they so people get all worked up about this national this you know national debate, but what really happens locally or in a state is what affects them, and how do you? get reach someone to say listen yes i know this is important to you having prayer in school and this and that but it really doesn't affect you because they you really no one's stopping your kid from praying listen i i can explain how this whole system works right and it's it's a little dark um but it's the reality when i worked in the state senate the overwhelming majority of issues and legislation that I worked on, uh, my, my senator was on the banking and insurance committee. And so most of the bills that go through Tallahassee are, are business-related in some way, right? Most of the ones that actually pass are, have some sort of business implication. So what you have is a system where the big businesses in this, in, in this state and in this country, really, they spend a lot of money to make sure that the people they want elected become elected, right? Because then they know they can count on their vote whenever something is going to pass through Tallahassee that they need support on to lower their bottom line, get more money to their shareholders, right? And so what happens is a lot of these big big ticket items that you're talking about, um, gun violence prevention, abortions, another big one, a lot of these issues have Supreme Court precedent that protects the right of an individual to have access to a firearm or to have access to abortion if they want it. But they're used as talking points. They're, they're used as wedge issues, right? So that mm-hmm. the, the powers that be are able to pull support to their side or the other side. Meanwhile, all of the legislation predominantly deals with business interests. And so the corporate interests that really run Tallahassee are able to get what they want. Meanwhile, all the voters are distracted on issues that generally the state isn't going to really change much anyway. Now, there are some big changes, for instance, with the LGBTQ community um, that the state could pass, right, that would help that community, the business, um, I'm sorry, Equality, uh, Workforce Equality Act, for instance, to protect discrimination. Um, there are huge implications, so don't get me wrong. There's definitely things that pass at the state that hurt these rights, but they're generally the, the issues that gain all the attention. Meanwhile, the businesses are getting what they want, which increases their bottom line, which gives them more money to spend on electing the candidates they want, right? So it, it's, it's 
kind of a, which came first, a chicken or the egg. Um, do you, you know, elect new representatives first, or do you change the politics and the issues so that voters understand what they're voting on first? Um, and it's a hard question. Okay, well, case in point, there's two, two, two examples that show, uh, one, the short one, the, um, the solar power, the legislation mm-hmm. for solar power that passed in the last election was uh, the nomenclature of or the, the verbiage used in the law mm-hmm. made it appear as if it was friendly or promoting right. the spread of solar power. It actually was a restrictive force. They were trying – it was opposite of what it purported to be. Right. And, 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 then, and then the other thing, which, you know, we don't, we don't have to relitigate because it passed to the favor of solar power, right? So, you know, uh, I, th- I think that's what happened. It was more, the, the more beneficial uh, result occurred. Am I correct with that? Are you talking about the constitutional amendment? No, no. They, there was I, would the, have to go, I would have to go back and check. Yeah, but okay. What happened? One the one pass that was more beneficial to to promoting solar power, and the restoration of the traditional water flow, flow through the Everglades. Now, um, mm-hmm. that over the past couple of years, we've seen tangible results of what uh, the effu- the effluent that came out of Okeechobee would be spreading into uh, the canals and going on the east and west coast. And we saw massive uh, red tide clusters and die off of, uh, of aquatic life in those areas where that came out. And it was, it was tangible. It showed you this is the black junk water that comes out of Okeechobee. Right. That's put in there the by blue green algae. Yeah. Horrible stuff. And, and then we have mm-hmm. Florida Bay down here. So that's a, a supposedly a separate issue, but it really isn't. I don't think it. I think it's all tied together. So then there's the reestablishment of the water flow, the river of grass going through South Florida. Um, there was a plan to purchase 60,000 acres to restore the traditional water flow. It ended up, I don't even know if they passed it. It got, it, it got watered down, no pun intended, to 6,000 yeah. acres. Yeah, it was SB 10. Mm-hmm. It, it got watered down to 6,000 acres. Uh, it was very important. It's one of the the uh, most bipartisan issues, at least in this part of the country, part of the state, because you had very conservative fishermen and people there. They understood that the salinity levels and, you know, the seagrass and all everything was tied together to that fresh water flow going into Florida Bay. And, and knowing how important it was, how that they still they still were able to or whatever forces to restrict that to restrict that flow for some reason. What um, if if I was an industry that let's say the sugar, big sugar big sugar could have said, well, listen, we're going to do one, we're going to give one to the, the environmental people, right? Where this is a good, this is a good thing, but no, they went all in to restrict that, didn't they? Yep, yeah, they did. And you know, Big Sugar is uh, an entity that I've kind of been railing against since I ran in 2016. I mean, that's really what I 
um, I campaigned on a lot when I ran for the state house. And it's interesting that this comes up because the reality is that the way that these business interests work in Tallahassee, like I just spoke about a second ago, the first step is always to delay, right? Because when you're talking about a business entity that has to worry about shareholders, you're talking about quarters, right? So every quarter that a business entity can delay some big expensive project or some big expensive legislative change, change means that that's another quarter where they're able to give dividends to their shareholders, right? And so the first step is always delay. And you saw that with, with Big Sugar is that they had this lease, right? There was talk about canceling the lease and could we do it? And what they did, because they have been funding legislative races in this state for God knows who, how long, decades at least. And they were able to make sure that that kept getting pushed back and kept getting pushed back and kept getting pushed back until it got to the end of the lease. And then once there was enough public attention to basically require that the legislature do something, like you said, they were able to then use their connections to make sure that it went from 60000 to 6000 right? Yeah. And so that it all comes back to the money to me. When, when I look at legislative processes um, and I look at the way that politics happen in this state, a lot of times it comes back to the money, and I feel like this is a good time to point out that both of my candidates, the Democratic candidate that I'm running against and the Republican candidate that I'm running against, are former lobbyists. They were lobbyists for years, and they're both taking money from FPL, which is doing all the solar issues you talked about, and they're taking mm -hmm. money from Big Sugar, which is doing these issues with the water. So, so yeah, well, getting money out of politics, that's uh... – you know, there's there've been floating ideas, you know, publicly funded campaigns and things like that. Uh, but the 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 problem with the, um, that a lot of people is just they they don't understand. Are you still there? Hello. Yes, I am. I was drinking oh, good. coffee. I'm here. Oh, good, good, good. <laughs> uh, that you have uh, all all different vehicles on how to uh, get money to a campaign, and that could be through. Uh, right. A political action committee where you're just using uh, issues uh -huh. to uh, you drive an issue and, and a candidate attaches himself to the issue. So in extenuation, they're funding their campaign. So if someone's pro, um, you know, like some. Oh, God, I even know I have to say. Uh, well, we have um, you You mentioned FP&L. Uh, we have uh, Turkey uh -huh. Point. Uh, nuclear power yep. plant up on the mainland and you mentioned that there is uh, the uh, the coolant water that uh, leaves Turkey Point leaves at a higher salinity because of, of the process of using you know people don't really understand there's a there was a HBO miniseries called Cher Chernobyl until that point most people yeah who, who saw that did not realize how nuclear power actually generates uh, a power right. it's it's a steam uh, it's a steam turbine that's that's what it generates heat and it, the heat produced creates steam and it drives a turbine and that's it and it's not Energy is not directly generated through nuclear power. It's 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 the fuel. And right. 
And so and, at Turkey Point, what to your point, yeah. they're using ocean water to yes. cool that reactor. And so yes. when that water passes past the reactor, the water mo- molecules turn into steam, but that salt in the, in the ocean water has to go somewhere. Yes. So some of the water remains, but when it comes out, it is a much higher salt content. Yeah, they, they, you lose you lose water, and when you lose water, you gain salinity because the, the salt's right. always going to remain. The salt does not uh, uh, dissipate, and that's uh, that's a problem with a lot of different processes. And I didn't want to get into that. We we're just explaining that to someone about uh, desalinization. You have to find a way to sequester uh, a sodium sodium chloride, uh, but in this case, it's going into the canals. And you mentioned to me that uh, I, I wasn't aware of this, that it was as leaching into the water table, the South Florida uh, aquifer. That's right. And, so uh, what is happening is that the there there is a much better uh, system for cooling the water that comes out of Turkey Point. It's uh, installing cooling uh, towers, right, that go up, and the, the, the heat is dissipated in that way instead of going through just these canals that look like a radiator laid on its side, right? Massive area of canals that this water is pushed through, basically ditches. And so what is happening is that salt water is sinking down. It is creating something called a plume, which is a high salinity uh, mass of salt water inside of our fresh water supply. And that plume continues to grow daily. Uh, And when you combine that with the already encroaching seawater, which is hurting our freshwater supply also because of sea level rise, you've got a situation where we could be in a really bad um, scenario without fresh water within years, um, decades, but it's, you know, it's, it's within our lifetime. I've talked to people that believe that's eight to nine years away. Um, I've, I've read other things that say 20 to 30, but um, it's definitely there. And it's something that would be so easily fixed just by forcing FPNL to install these cooling towers. But that doesn't happen. Why? Because they spend a lot of money on our politicians. Our politicians refuse to require them to do it. When I was working with the congresswoman's office, I actually went and spoke on her behalf at the uh, city of Homestead because the federal nuclear commission, I forget the proper Daniel, I'm name. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Uh, there's a little interruption coming from uh, uh, your, your audio is breaking up slightly. I, I hear you now. Oh, good. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. You were talking. Uh, could you uh, go back and just uh, repeat what you said about the congresswoman you, when you were working for the congresswoman? Sure. When I was working for the congresswoman, um, I spoke on her behalf um, when we gave a statement to the uh, the Federal Nuclear Commission, and I don't remember the proper name, but the Federal Nuclear Commission came down to Homestead. The NRC, the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. I think. NRC, that's right, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, came down to hear about whether or not they would extend the lease for uh, Turkey Point. And, you know, we spoke about all the things that they should be doing to fix the situation, and none of them, you know, they all fell on deaf ears. Uh, and that was the federal level, but it happens at the state level, too, because FPL pays for a lot of elected officials to get either elected or reelected. And so I, I to your point about getting money out of politics, I, I'm, I must say, I think that this election cycle, because everyone
everyone is at their house right now. Um, fundraising for, for campaigns is difficult right now, which means that a strong grassroots candidate like myself, as well as other grassroots candidates across the country, I think that if we're ever in a time where we have a legitimate shot to show the power of everyday people getting together and making change in their government, I think it's this election cycle because there's going to be much less money flowing around for elections uh, this year than there has been in quite a while. Well, um, I, I, I'm calling me pessimistic, but I think if anybody, if the, <laughs> uh, if the, if the RNC and, and their supporters have any money left over, and I, they will have money left over, they're going to pour it in. But from what I understand, a lot of uh, uh, the Democratic candidates are, are getting a boost in that. So, we spent a lot of time talking, and I, I, I purposely I avoided a lot of the COVID nineteen because those issues, even though sure. they're pertinent to us right now, uh, once you know the election goes out, it's going to be, it's going to be. I'm not going to say it's going to be in a rearview mirror. We're going to have to deal with that in the future. But it did expose some uh, problems with our. Let's say uh, we we did mention unemployment system. Uh, but our health care system and affordable housing, uh, which is, uh, I'd say affordable housing is a hot button, hot button issue in, in Monroe County, uh, considers some of the highest, uh, the, the, you know, the, the rental prices and property prices for, you know, a, a, a house uh, that you'd see in mid-state that would run about $150,000, uh, a, a 2-1 could run $300,000 down here easy. Uh, it, it's, uh, you know, I, it, it, so so when that filters down to the working class, the, you don't see a commensurate change in the income. If housing is twice as much, they're, they're just making, you know, they're making, they may boost their salaries like 10 to 15%. What, what is a way that the state can aid the county. I don't. I'm not necessarily think that the, the the state is responsible for housing in a locality, uh, but the locality has some responsibility to do with that too. But what can the state do to ameliorate that situation for people that live in places like Monroe County? Sure. So there are a few things that the state can do. So there is a, a trust. It's called the Sadowski Trust. Um, and that was set up in uh, in the state legislature years ago to fund affordable housing projects. And what has happened is that all of that money that was set aside every year in the budget for these affordable housing projects, the Republicans have just been taking the money out of that trust fund and spending it for other things. So the first thing that we can do is make sure that the Sadowski Trust is always fully funded. And I, as an elected official, I will always support voting for making sure that the Sadowski Trust is fully funded so that that money is available to help create more affordable housing. Now, the other side of this issue is wages, right? And there is a, uh, a constitutional ballot initiative that will be on uh, on the ballot in November to increase the minimum wage. I fully support increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour, at least. And, and if you look at the numbers and you consider inflation from when the minimum wage was first created, it probably even needs to be higher. But 
I think that in combination with that, you don't want to put small business owners out of out of business because they, they are spending more on wages. But in Tallahassee, all of the tax incentives and all of the tax cuts generally go to the biggest corporate entities and the business, the big, biggest businesses in the state. And I believe that we should have more money set aside to help small business owners, right, help pay higher wages. If we're going to spend money on corporate on corporate entities, I prefer to spend it on small businesses that have direct ties to their community, that that directly support local workers than the biggest businesses in the state that are more concerned about shareholder dividends than they are about you know, cost of living and affordable wages at the local level. Okay. So uh, there's um, there's some speculation that once we get out of this that uh, the restaurant the industry is going to be particularly hard hit and that uh, – Two-thirds of the restaurants in the United States are independently uh, run, family, small businesses. And it could be – there is speculation, and, and I, it, it's from inside the industry that it could be upwards of 50 percent of those independent restaurants could not weather, may not weather the, uh, this. Now, I don't uh, – personally, I don't believe that the keys will be – as hard to hit by those estimations because of the amount of tourism we have down here uh, and the resources. But, you know, when, when you see that amount of people, um, I think tourism is either going to come back or it's not. And if it doesn't come back, then you'll see a commensurate drop uh, in the people that live down here. Uh, so, what can you tell people when they're like saying they're afraid for the jobs and say into that, you know, uncertainty that we're going to be opening up soon and then it's rolling in November next year. What, what do people, what do people do? What, I mean, this is an uncertain time. And I know I didn't say it was, if we were going to mention COVID-19, but what's your vision for the, South Florida or this district here, what's going to happen in the next year? So I think there are multiple stages of, of answering that question. I think, mo- you know, most importantly is what are people able to do right now? Um, and I think that's also the most difficult answer because the reality is, is that right now we're in the middle of this crisis. And I don't believe um, that we're prepared to reopen the entire economy, but especially in the Keys where the medical facilities wouldn't be able to handle any sort of spike um, in in the contraction of COVID-19. However, I think when you talk about tourism and tourism coming back, I agree with you. Listen, the the Keys are beautiful. They're one of the most beautiful places on earth. And I think that you're always going to have a very strong um, interest of outsiders that want to come down and visit the Keys. However, I think that to your point about uh, you know local workers and and local people that live here, how it, it, it's more about how long can they hang on, right? I mean, if this stretches, if this were to only go for another week, I think it'd be fine. If this stretches out for a year of limitations and and places not being open, having to social distance at restaurants, right? You're a bartender. Can you imagine 
having all of your patrons spaced out six feet apart in your restaurant, how many people could you fit at that bar? I think right. I, I was. I was. It'd be eight people. Eight people with the current um, social distancing rules. Right, and so I was listening today mm-hmm. about a restaurant and what they're doing is they've got um, people they're waiting for it. I think this is up in Georgia, and I think Georgia is reopening way too early. Um, but they're basically uh, waiting for a table, right, in their car. And then they have certain tables that people can't sit at, so there's enough distance. And then people get called, and they go sit at their table. And then, you know, once they finish, the staff comes in and cleans up, and they do it all over again. But you're talking about, right, space that isn't – you know this. Restaurants, right, the entire restaurant industry is all about margins, right? You've got to be making profit on your margins. And when you're missing tables and you're missing seats at the bar, right – you're not selling food, you're not selling drinks, which means that you're not going to be able to make the money to keep the doors open. You're not going to be able to employ as many people, mm-hmm. right? So I think that even as the economy starts to reopen, I think there are long-term um, realizations that we have to take into account that it's going to take a while, which means that we need a better safety net to help people during the transition. So, the longer-term vision for the for at least the 2021 legislative session, which is when I once elected would be able to go to Tallahassee and start doing things. I know you're pessimistic, and I generally am, am cynical as well. However, I will say I believe that there is going to be a much stronger sense of empathy um, at the state legislative level in this upcoming session probably than there ever has been, or at least in quite a while, maybe since 9-11. Uh, frankly, because whereas 9-11 kind of brought this country together around patriotism, right, I think that this crisis is bringing people together around the sense of society and the sense of uh, community belonging. I mean, it's pretty tough on people not to be able to go hug your best friend, right, or, or hug your neighbor. Here in Miami-Dade, right, if you come up to Miami, you greet people with a, a, in Spanish, it's besito, a little kiss on the cheek, and you can't do that at all up here, right? So people are beginning to understand the implications of this crisis on their everyday life and their relationships with other people, and people that never would have expected to be in a situation where they don't have a job, where they've lost their job, where they've been furloughed, are now understanding what other people have been going through for years, right? An unexpected thing pops up. You know, before this crisis, you you have a sick loved one, you lose your job, you lose your house, whatever happened, and then you need unemployment assistance, right? Well, society has looked down on those people for a long time, and I think that now there's going to be a sense of, wow, wow, this can happen to anyone. And so I'm actually very hopeful that in the 2021 legislative session, we can have honest conversations across the aisle. I'm, I'm hoping, fingers crossed, literally I'm crossing my fingers as I speak mm-hmm. to you. But I do think that we will be able to pass measures um, that will really be able to help people. Part of that is coming from a positive place. Part of that is coming from a cynical place of me thinking, listen, these Republicans in Tallahassee have constituents that are unemployed, too. And if they don't do something, they're going to get voted out of office. So it's probably in their self-interest to put something in place to fix the problems that we have now. And so whatever their motivations are, that's for them. I just care about making sure that I can help as many people as possible as an elected official. 
And so I do think that there is a lot of potential to do good in 2021 and to really start working to reopen the economy and to base it off of what's in the best interest of the most amount of people that need help. Now, to your point about restaurants and what can happen, the state of California is actually doing something really interesting where the governor has made it possible for restaurants to start preparing meals um, for senior citizens that will be paid for by the state. And so restaurants are providing meals um, to their older residents, um, and the state is stepping in to make sure that those are paid for, which means that these restaurants are able to stay open, they're able to keep their staff, even if the numbers um, are lower than what it would usually be, obviously, you know, if they were you know, doing normal business operations. It's something. And I think that that's a really interesting program. I would love to see something like that happen in Florida. Um, but, you know, the governor's kind of behind the ball on a lot of this stuff. So well, we, uh, we shall see. With the, pessim- the pessimism was when it comes to funding for campaigns. I just feel that the, the money's going to be that's left behind is going to be supporting uh, is going to be on the other side, but the results, I believe, yeah. because I think uh, people are going to see through the, and um, forgive me for saying the bullshit um, because they've been watching, well, that's what it is, they've been so watching the news. So I think they're going to see beyond it. When it comes to restaurants, um, if they, they're going to institute 50, you know, I've seen some states that say 25% capacity, 50% capacity. Uh, what, it's just dollars and cents. I wasn't a business major, but I'm really good with math. And if you can't, uh, restaurants make their money, a lion's share of the money during peak times, weekends, yep. Friday, Saturday evenings, the busiest times. And if you take away their peak times, then you're taking away their profit. And that's just dollars that's and right. cents. And that's the way it is. And, uh, that's when I saw that takeout thing. I knew the takeout thing was a good idea for restaurants to run out their stock. You know, that was a great idea to get rid of perishables. It was a wonderful idea for whether it was going to keep a restaurant open. No, it won't. Um, the only thing, the way they are, unless they reduce the tax burden on the restaurants, it's going to have to be a system, a system wide change on what their uh, liabilities are insurance would have to drop and all those things for restaurants to become viable so um there's people out there and they're very near and dear to my heart that are in the restaurant i'm working in the restaurant business i don't i foresee that there's going to be a lot of closures that come in and then eventually people just say hey we just got to do things a little differently um i i mean I've, yep. if, you're, if you're just like you're what you know as a as a an, as an attorney and a legislator, uh, I I know the restaurant business. And if you're five percent, you know that's your profit, and you take that away, then how long can you run a business at a loss? But that's neither here nor there with that. That's just you know that's just looking into the crystal ball. And I and I appreciate your words. I think um, that uh, being careful. I think this guy, this governor. He, he he looked like he was going to be foolhardy uh, with opening, but I think he's being a little more tentative and, and cautious in opening up. And I think that's a great idea. I I hope that your grassroots uh, campaign catches fire. And uh, how how does your support look right now? 
my support actually looks great. I've got um, I've got a lot of endorsements. Um, so the way that this district lines up, it's all of Monroe County, uh, and then you've got Homestead and Florida City, and you have FIU where I went to law school. So I, I'm very strong um, around FIU. I have a lot of relationships with the student body, um, and different interns that I've hired, uh, and past jobs, people I've placed, people I've stayed in touch with. But I have a lot of endorsements from local leaders um, in, in the Keys. Uh, you know, I've got about half of the Key West City Council. I've got commissioners, uh, Kaufman, Clayton Lopez, and uh, Davila. Um, they've all endorsed me. I've got Clint Barris, who is running for House District 120. He's endorsed me as well as the past candidate, Steve, uh, Steve Friedman, uh, who ran for that seat in 2018. Um, I've got a lot of different Stan Zuba. Um, I've got folks down in Key West like Mark Urban Hawk. Um, oh, Stan uh, Aaron Zuba. Huntsman, he's he's, he's my daughter's pediatrician. What a great guy. <laughs> he's everybody's pediatrician. <laughs> yeah, up here, yeah, up in the upper keys. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So Stan, Stan's been great. He and his husband uh, are amazing. They've been really awesome supporters. Um, so I've got a lot of really strong Shirley Freeman, the past mayor of Monroe County. Uh, has endorsed me. So I've got a lot of really good support, um, and I feel confident that we have a very strong path to victory. Um, the reality is is that we're going to have to do more work than the other side, which you know is fine with me. I like doing the political work. I, I prefer to knock on doors, believe it or not, um, which most candidates do not like. I really like it. So that's actually, from the campaign side, that's probably what has frustrated me the most is that I can't get out and knock on those doors. Because uh, I believe in adding that personal touch to a you know a relationship with your voters, um, but we stand a really good chance. You can check out the Facebook page. It's uh, it's my name, Daniel Horton Diaz, uh, for Florida Senate. Last name is spelled H O R T O N, like the elephant from Dr. Seuss, and then you add a hyphen and then Diaz D I A Z. Um, you can also check out the website at DanielForFlorida.com. So check it out. Let me know what you think. You know, get engaged on social media, like, comment, share, all that fun. And uh, you know, if you can help, I'd love to have you. Oh, well, you and all of the listeners, of course. Well, I don't know if you want all of the listeners. Uh, I want all of them. All no, of them. Well, Everybody. They should be. You don't want them. <laughs> <laughs> Why would I say that stuff about my listeners? I don't know. Uh, they're, <laughs> I. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, just like relatives, you just don't want your uncle, your uncle Ted to say anything uh, because <laughs> he's gonna, it's going to be pretty outrageous. Uh, but uh, I'd like to thank you for coming on. And uh, it's normally we don't we don't have politicians on and or or legislators. I, I politician. I I that was my that's my uh, that's my hobby. I love politics and uh, I love talking it. So I'd like to thank you, and I wish you best of luck. And we'll post that information if you send me that. I'll put it in the um, send me that the links, and I'll put it in the notes here when I put it out there. I will do that. Okay. And I, and I really appreciate you having me on. It's been great speaking with you. It's been great to uh, chat about some of the issues, and I, I really do appreciate your time and uh, putting this out there for the listeners. Thank you very much, Daniel. Take care to you and your wife. Okay. All right, Jim. You have a good one. Thank you. Okay, guys, that was it. We'd like to thank uh, 
thank you, Daniel. And I'd like to thank my sponsors. Uh, we have uh, our friends from... Oh, here we go. She's sending a message right there. Uh, but we have our friends at DeKind CBG Products. And you go to www.cbg.com. No, it's www.dakind.com. And they have some uh, wonderful assortments of CBG uh, products, edibles and oils and all those things. And if you don't know a lot about it, just go to the website. Once again, it's www.dakind, that's thekind.com, and I'll post it in the show notes. And also, we uh, if you go to www.keysbartender.com, you go to sponsors, we have Bellissima Wines, the wonderful makers of Prosecco, and uh, white sparkling white wine, uh, low sugar substitute white wine. So uh, you have some great choices there. Uh, Chrissy Brinkley is the uh, one that makes that wine. So we, uh, we'll talk about that a little later. We're going to have a second show a little later. Take care. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.